Now, having spoken about the design of marriage from the beginning in Genesis chapter 2, and we've spoken of the responsibility of the husband to give his wife tulips, to love her as Christ has loved him, now we're going to talk about the role of the wife. And I have to admit, as a man speaking on this subject, I find it really difficult. We believe that in mixed settings, men should be the teachers. I'd almost be more comfortable having my wife, but I got problems with that in 1 Timothy 2. But I will tell you this, that what I know about this subject is from the Word of God, but those who have really taught me what the Bible means about this are people like Martha Peace, Elise Fitzpatrick, and my wife, who as women have really come to understand the struggles of what it means to submit, and then the beauty of that. In Proverbs 31, 26, it says, She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. And so I'm thankful for the gift that God has given to his church to have godly women who really understand these things and help women with them. And Ephesians 5, 22 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And so as I had the memory device of T-U-L-I-P for the husbands, I have one for the wives, which is honor. A, a godly wife honors her husband. So first is H, and H is hold fast to the role which God has given you. It's a subordinate role, and you're going to be pressured by worldly thinking, which will tell you that what the Bible says is out of date, and it's uh, tribal customs of patriarchal people from centuries ago, that Paul was a chauvinist. You're also going to be tempted by the fact that you've married a man who doesn't love you as well as Christ does. And you'll be tempted to look at that as an excuse to get out of it. We are in a day in which many people are offended by what the Bible says about these things. And you could, be, you could upset people just by reading those verses. We have not just the world in its egalitarianism, but even within Christianity, there has been a rejection in, in evangelical Christianity of the distinction of the roles of men and women in both the church and in the home. With Christian feminism, they're even retranslating some Bible versions to take out the distinctions. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, Many people believe the Bible, so long as it does not contradict what they happen to believe as creatures of this century. Again, the grass withers, the flower fades, the Word of God stands forever. And we're creatures of a new century beyond the one in which Lloyd-Jones wrote. But that pressure is still there. As we saw in Genesis 2, God created marriage. He designed marriage to be a partnership in which the husband is the head and the wife follows his leadership. In 1 Corinthians 11, in verse 8, we read earlier, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. It's not a cultural issue. It's not because men were bigger and stronger and could force their way on the women. It's because God's design was that in the institution of marriage, in the covenant of marriage, the man would be the leader. He's done that for our good. He's done it for the protection of the family. Uh, you can't have a democracy with two people in which each votes. You get stuck. Somebody has to break the tie. And we do not have the right to redefine gender roles. We don't have the right to kind of 
Just like you can't remake marriage to say it could be a man and a man. You can't remake marriage to say that the roles are different than what God has said about the husband and the wife. Many of the objections people have to the submission of a wife come from an unbiblical idea of what makes someone equal or significant. To be in subjection to someone as your head does not mean that that person is superior to you or that you are inferior. And the most outstanding proof of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, where Paul writes, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So you see that hierarchy, right? Who's on the top? God the Father is head over Christ. That the Father sends the Son into the world. The Son says that his delight is to do the Father's will. He subordinates himself to the Father at Gethsemane. He says, not my will, but your will be done. Is that demeaning to the Son? That he's in submission to his head? No, the glory of the Son is that he does the Father's will. And Paul uses that as an analogy in the same way in the church and in the home as God has made the man the head and the wife subordinate under the head. They are equal as much as the Father and the Son are equal with the Spirit, three persons in the Trinity. And yet within that equality, there is order. The same thing comes out about the equality. Our wives, 1 Peter 3, are fellow heirs of the grace of life. Galatians 3 says that there's neither male nor female. That doesn't mean we aren't actually men and women with different roles. It means that spiritually we are absolutely equal, but God has established order and authority in relationships in many spheres. We're to obey the government. Children are to obey their parents. Church members are to follow the lead of their elders. And so likewise, God has established order in the family. Another misunderstanding about submission really comes from the worldly idea that it's not a new idea, it's an old idea, that in order to be equal, you have to be the boss. In Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 25, Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wants to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the world, and this is the way the world promotes feminism. Oh, this is a great thing. The women are in charge of this. Women are in charge of that. In terms of politics and the workplace, I don't want to argue about that. That's fine. But in in context of the home and in the church where God has created this order, the idea that, well, you have to be able to be the elder, the pastor, or the boss in the family to be the same He says, that's the way the world thinks, that you can boss other people around. But greatness is in being a servant, as Jesus himself came not to be served, but to serve, as he gave his life as a ransom for many. And just as the husband is Christ-like, in that he sacrifices himself for his wife, a wife is also being Christ-like, in that as Jesus humbled himself to be a servant, that's what the role of the wife is designed to be. Now, God's ideal for submission is not that the man be selfish and immature and make his wife wear a burqa and yell at her like Archie Bunker did or something. That's what happened because of the fall, is that men do become sinfully domineering. But he's to treat her as Christ treats the church, which is to honor her. He's not to dictate to her. He is not to put her down. Ideally, he will listen to her. 
Now, the Bible will address, what if he doesn't treat you that way? And 1 Peter 3 is going to stay, still you submit to him, hoping that by your godly behavior, he will be changed. So, hold fast to what the Bible teaches, even though it's very hard in a culture which rejects that. And then, the second is, obey your husband's leadership for the Lord's sake. Back to Ephesians 5, 22, it says, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. It's a recognition that God has made your husband the head of the family, not because he is necessarily worthy. You're doing this for the Lord's sake. In the same way that if the President of the United States came in right now, I hope he'd sit down and listen, but regardless, we would treat him with respect because of the office he holds, even if not all of us embrace all of his politics. And in the same way, with your husband, you, they say you salute the uniform, you salute the position. God has put him in this position. Then in verse 24, he says that wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. And that means comprehensively. I'm going to talk about exceptions in a moment. But when you get married and you put yourself under the authority of your husband, and I think Martha Peace does a really good job in her book, The Excellent Wife, developing this, is that you want the way you run your role in the family to be under his leadership, how you spend your time, how you spend money, whether you work, how much you work, how you dress, how you raise the kids, the meals you prepare. Now, this is not authorizing the husbands to micromanage in these things. Back to Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 says the heart of her husband trusts in her. That woman had a lot of independence under her husband's authority, which is the ideal. And it's more, submission is more than just obeying commands. Caroline would tell you, I don't issue many orders. I can almost remember none. Submission is anticipating the needs and and the desires and the hopes of your husband and asking yourself, how can I help him? It may mean if you're unsure what to do, a wise wife would say, well, how would you like for me to handle this if you don't know what he wants you to do? Now, the real test of submission is when you don't agree. It's easy to submit when he's right. And I don't know how many women have told me, oh, I, if he would lead me like Jesus leads me, I would follow. It's not that easy. Um, you follow his leadership without fear because you trust God. Uh, Caroline, in her counseling of women, notices that a huge issue for a wife is she's fearful. And I've likened it, you're in the passenger seat of a car of a guy who's not paying attention to the road. And she's in that passenger seat, and he's driving, and she's fearful of how it's going to affect the children. She's fearful of the financial decisions he's going to make, the career decisions he's going to make. And because of that fear, she can be tempted to climb over the top of the guy and grab the wheel. And it's not saying that he'll never do that. But in 1 Peter 3, when it's telling wives, even if their husbands are disobedient, that the, even if the husband is disobedient to follow his leadership, it says, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. How can you overcome fear? It's because you're trusting God and not your husband. And you're putting your hope in him. And if you're fearful, you're tempted to take over and to control, and then that can make the situation much worse. Uh, Caroline has something she does to get my attention when she thinks I'm wrong. She'll say something like this. I will pray for you and trust that God will help you to make a wise decision. (laughs) 
and the burning coals are just bouncing off my head. (laughs) But I think that's the right attitude. I know she means it when she says it. It means you don't take over his headship. Uh, It's not that hard in many marriages for the wife to take over. There are men who are more passive. There are men who are willing to make peace at too high a price, and they would abdicate their leadership, and the wife fills that vacuum. Oftentimes we find that the women with a very strong personality marry the men who are more laid back by nature, and it's much more challenging for them in the marriage to actually assume the roles that God has designed for them. And so you have to keep in mind, it is not your job to take over, but you're going to be tempted to take over. You're going to be tempted to want to exercise control. It's not just because you don't trust him. You're not trusting God to lead you through him. But I know that can be hard. It takes faith, but it's faith in God. And then also, along with obeying, it's not just what you do, but it's your attitude as well. In verse 33, Paul says, Nevertheless, and back to Ephesians 5, Each individual among you is to love his wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. The proverb says, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness in her bones. In in his bones. A wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. That means in your submission, you're not angry, resentful, or servile, but you're cheerful and kind because you're trusting the Lord. It means it affects how you speak about him around other people, not to put him down. It can be some kind of sinister pleasure sometimes to gossip about your spouse and say the stupid things he did or how hard your life is, perhaps to get criticism. It means when He made the mistake, and he led you badly, and now you're in financial trouble. You don't rub it in. You withhold criticism. And one of the big problems men have is, I'll have a man, and he's about to check out. He says, there's nothing I can do to please this woman. And he just quits trying. You don't want, through your disrespect, to discourage him. Titus says, or Paul says to Titus, I should say, in Titus 2, that as you do the right thing, as you're subject to your husband, the word of God will not be dishonored. Which means if you're disrespectful to your husband, you're dishonoring the word of God. It's not just on the horizontal plane. It's, it's, it's ultimately relating to the Lord. And submission is an act of faith in God. It's an act of trust in God. And then H-O-N is notice how you can be his helper. Notice how you can do him good. Genesis 2.18, the Lord said he was going to make a helper suitable for the man. In Proverbs 31, it says she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. Women, the Lord designed you to complete your husband, to be a complement to him. And that idea would be like if you cut an apple in half and they're kind of jagged edges, they fit together. It's not that you're just like him. The very differences between you and him is one way you help him. One way is simply to be a companion, to be a friend. The proverb says a friend loves at all times. That means you have to be a gracious friend, even when he's not the perfect husband. One important way to help him is sexually. We already read in Proverbs chapter 5, where a man is tempted and we're in a highly sexualized world, and he's tempted by images and thoughts and even physical temptations when it says drink water from your own well to be refreshed and to be exhilarated, to 
by grace, help him in that area. And your husband needs more than mere sexual intimacy. It's the oneness and the union. There's a lovely booklet by Aileen Challies that we sometimes pass out. It's free on the internet. And she says, your husband doesn't just want your body. He wants all of you. He wants to feel close to you. And that's a tremendous way where you can help him. And then help him in other ways where he's weak. Um, I can be a bit of a bull in a china shop sometimes. I'm, I'm kind of intense and driven. And my wife is much more sensitive to people. And she will sometimes help me by saying, you kept interrupting that person, and he's kind of quiet. You should have let him talk more. And uh, even sometimes if we're together, she, now you'll see it, but she'll like put her little hand on my arm. It's like, stop talking and let other people talk. Um, but I need that because I have weaknesses and sins of which I'm unaware. Maybe the wife is more careful and she's better at balancing the checkbook. And it's not a violation of male headship for the husband to delegate certain things to her where she's better. In Proverbs 31.23, it says her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. I think the implication there, since you're talking about a woman, is that this wife, because of the way she helps him, the way she does him good, the way she manages the home, he has in his vocation risen to the top. And she's a big reason for that. He's among the leaders of the city, civic leaders, religious leaders. And so... As your home is in order, and as you're his career counselor and encourager, offering advice, as through hospitality you help build relationships, um, you're helping him to move ahead in that to which God has called you. And then there's balance here, but you don't make so many demands upon him that he can't succeed. Uh, Caroline likes to say that she wants to be a low-maintenance wife that she doesn't want to be so demanding that I can't do ministry, uh, have to neglect vocation. And so you want to be relatively low maintenance. I'm telling the man, lots of maintenance. You know, care for your wife. But uh, to help him to be a success. And then she does him good and not evil all the days of his life. Women have an incredible amount of power over their husbands. Why else did Adam eat the fruit? Why else did Abraham sleep with Hagar? It was to please their wives. And I actually find that not many men really have the courage to say no to their wives. And so you can use that influence to draw them closer to Christ, or you could use it less profitably. When you encourage him for spiritual leadership, when you encourage him in ministry for the things he's trying to do, again, watering the tulips, you're going to be helping him. And then you're his counselor. Uh, Proverbs 31, 26, already read. He, she opens her mouth in wisdom. The teaching of kindness is on her tongue. From the standpoint of the husband, you should eagerly welcome your wife's thoughts on various subjects and seek her opinion before you make decisions. Some men are very foolish, and they think leadership means they just decide without asking anybody. No, you should ask. And a wife should be ready to give advice, pointing him to the Lord, to Scripture, but for him to be receptive to that, he has to believe you're really on his side. If you're a nagging wife and a critical wife, he's not going to be as eager to seek the teaching or whatever else that comes off of your lips. And then uh, we'll get to this later in terms of restoring him if he strays. And then O is organize your life around your responsibilities at home. Regardless of what else you're doing, Scripture teaches that your family comes first. In Titus chapter 2, 
It says older women are to teach the young women, encourage them to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. If you choose to get married, you're making a choice to put your husband ahead of anything in your life other than the Lord. And the calling of a homemaker is a very high calling according to the Bible. And I know the world sometimes will demean that. I've had women who will complain, their parents will say, why do we pay for you to go to college when you're just raising kids? Well, I'm homeschooling the kids. And uh, there's a lot more involved in being a mom than you know. Um, More women actually in our culture, even unbelieving women, are recognizing that they want to be back home with their kids. God has built that into them. Part of the responsibility of a husband is to make it possible for his wife to be with the kids as much as possible. But then there's a great benefit to someone who's devoted to making the home a place of beauty and joy, uh, a civilizing influence. When you see how men are when they live together as roommates compared to what happens when one of them gets married and the wife is taking care of the place. Uh, Early in our marriage, my wife, I noticed she was trying to make, she'd put food on the plate and she wanted the food to be different colors so it would look right. And brown is good for me, potatoes, meat. Um... And just making, investing in making the home not just a fuel stop and a sleep station, but actually a place of joy and refuge. Now, this does not mean that a wife cannot make a financial contribution to the family. The woman in Proverbs 31 is making money. She's a capitalist. She sees her gain and that it's good. She's buying and selling. Uh, so it doesn't mean that she can't do that. And, and really, this is something that each family has to work out together under the husband's leadership how she spends her time, how much she works outside the home. Certainly some jobs are more suited for being a wife and a mother than others, kind of home-based businesses. Um, So it's a matter of freedom, and many women are called on to make those contributions. Um, Then, well, what if your kids are grown? Well, that's also in Titus 2, isn't it? The older women should teach the younger women these things. And I know in the case of my wife, she's kind of found a second career after she got done homeschooling our three kids. And she's not sitting around eating bonbons and doing crossword puzzles all the time. Uh, (laughs) That she's doing works of charity, like the woman in Proverbs 31. She's meeting with younger women and helping them. And actually, over the years, a lot of our counseling we need ladies to counsel in IBCD. Churches need women who are really equipped to disciple and counsel. And a lot of times, that's the stage of life where that can happen. So H-O-N-O. And then R is restore your husband when he strays from the Lord. First Peter 3. I want to turn there for a few minutes if you want to follow me. Peter says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, may they be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. First, I want to say, I am so thankful to God that 1 Peter 3 is in the Bible. Because this is one of the most common problems we face, where you have a woman who's, from her standpoint, trying to follow the Lord, and she's trying to walk with the Lord, And she's discouraged. Maybe she's married to an unbeliever. Or perhaps her husband is a professing Christian. And she's just overwhelmingly disappointed. (laughs) 
in what's happening in the home. He's selfish, he's unkind, he's grumpy, he's bad with money. And for many women like that, they would love to have a leader to follow. They would love to have a husband who, who would love them in this way. And some women, again, they suffer loneliness. And it could be hard for those women to have heard my talk about how the husband should act and say, I would love for my husband even to try to do some of those things you were describing. And I'm just not getting that. What should I do? The world would say, cut bait, try again. But the scripture says, even if you're in a hard marriage, you trust God and you try to change your husband by treating him better than he deserves. Isn't that what this verse says? Without a word, win him by your behavior. And that's the way, even if he's a wayward professing Christian, God may use that to save your husband. Now, I'll give a caveat to that, and that is that if you are being physically abused, I believe you have the right to get out and to get safe and to get help from your church or whatever means you have, still pursuing reconciliation. But it doesn't mean stay there and take a beating. That's not how far this goes. But I also think the most important words in this verse are the first four words in my translation in the same way. Because a woman could say, well, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I should just love my husband so much and put up with his selfishness and hope things will get better. How can I do that? And sometimes the chapter divisions in the Bible, we miss things. In the same way, you wives. In the same way as what? In the same way as Christ. The previous text, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 2, he says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. For he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed." And so what should a woman think about when she's really struggling to love her husband and when she doesn't feel loved by her husband? Well, it's in the same way. That as Jesus was reviled, he did not talk back. He did not revile in return. And if your husband is super critical or even simply angry and saying hateful things and ungodly things, your temptation may be to say, you can't do that to me. I'm going to fight back. I'm going to show you. Or even just, I'm checking out of here. And again, if you're in physical danger, get safe. But there's a lot that the Lord would have you to put up with in hope that God would use that to transform him. And you look at Jesus, and when you're in that situation, you're following in his steps. As Jesus, when he was under sinful authority, how did he do it? He entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. And so you have to overcome the temptation when your husband is letting you down. You're tempted to nag. You're you're tempted, I mean, your flesh tells you to stand up for yourself. I actually heard years ago on a Christian radio program where a woman was calling calling to the counselor person, some psychologist, and she was describing a husband who was selfish and grumpy, nothing about physical abuse. And the guy on the show says, well, you can't put up with that. You've got to put up a boundary. You've got to show him he can't treat you that way. And she said, no, no, I thought the Bible said I should just treat him well. And all that never works. And she was referring to this passage. Yes, sometimes it does 
Doesn't always happen right away. But we were at uh, our church had a retreat this past summer, and the speaker, a pastor, described how his mother doing this led to the conversion of his father, who's now a leader in the church. God does use it. Now, nagging is a temptation because nagging often works in the short term. A man will take action to stop the dripping of the faucet. He, he will pay a price to make peace, but he's not doing it out of love. He's just doing it for his own peace of mind. And after a while, the constant criticism and the nagging, the husband learns to tune it out. Again, back to it's better to live on the corner of the roof than with a quarrelsome wife. So instead, it's trusting God. It's, it's tough, especially when it's your kids. And again, if there's flagrant sin involved, we're going to deal with that. But a lot of times, it's, it's lack of wisdom. It's lack of courtesy. It's lack of the fruit of the Spirit. And the Lord would have you to treat him so much better than he deserves that God might, in his grace, change his heart. And there are so many stories of this. Augustine describes how that happened with his own wife. Uh, one of my favorite stories is of Spurgeon telling a story of a woman whose husband had been out drinking in the pub and he brings his friends home and his wife gets up and is making them food and the friend says, why are you putting up with this? Your husband's a drunkard and he treats you so badly. And she said, well, my husband isn't a believer and God has been so good to me. He saved me and I realize that maybe all the good things he will ever experience is in this life. And I just want to make it as pleasant as I can for him. I hope God will save him one day. And I think, you know, how could he not be saved under such an influence? And there are many cases where that has happened. Now, many women fail in this because they make an idol of their husband or an idol of their marriage. I think it's especially hard when the guys are Christians. A lot of women will cut all kinds of slack for their kids. And their kids, even as young adults, can be rebellious and all these bad things. And I don't, we should still love our kids no matter what. But it's kind of like they expect more of the husband and then they put up with less when he fails. He too is a sinner. He may be a lost sinner. And God wants you to respond with grace and love that he doesn't deserve. But many women, they want so badly to have this wonderful, dreamy marriage relationship, whatever they think the ideal is, when it doesn't happen... They get frustrated, angry, and many of you know Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 8. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes the flesh his strength, whose heart turns from the Lord. He will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, in a land of salt without inhabitant. And one of the most common problems I see in, in wives with husbands who are not godly examples is they want so badly for the husband to perform, to be Christ-like, and And they want so badly to have this romantic, exciting, all the wonderful characteristics that marriage should be ideally. When they don't get it, they're all dried up. And they think, my husband has to rain on me or I'm going to die. Well, the scripture says, if you're depending upon men, you're going to be disappointed. They're going to let you down. What can you do? The next thing. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He will be like a tree planted firmly by the river of water that extends its roots by a stream. It will not fear when heat comes, but its leaves will be green. It will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. It's back to in the same way, that your hope is not that your husband will quickly change. Your hope is not that you're going to have the dreamy, wonderful marriage. Your hope is in God, 
And when your husband lets you down, he sustains you. And if you're not hoping in God, you're going to be tempted to a lot of anger. Now, Peter is not saying that a wife should always be silent when her husband is wrong. Uh, The situation in Peter is a disobedient husband. In a good marriage, a husband will welcome his wife's reproof. I use Proverbs chapter 9, verse 8. If you rebuke a scoffer, he will hate you. If you rebuke a wise man, he will love you. And Peter's saying if if you're married to a scoffer, there's not a lot of point in rebuking him. But if your husband is wise, he'll welcome your rebuke. And actually, my wife, I've shared this before with some of you, that during the early part of our marriage, she had the misunderstanding that submission meant she didn't criticize me. She's overcome that. Um, And as she's gotten the training, she now recognizes, and I've tried to explain to her that in order to be submissive to me, when you see me doing wrong, when you see me sinning, the way you help me is to tell me, because I may be blind. I want your help. And so in a good marriage, the husband makes it clear, I want you, if you see I'm doing something wrong, to help me, gently restoring me, not bashing me. But I know you're on my side and I need help. It's the foolish husband who's disobedient to God who makes it clear he doesn't want to hear it. If he doesn't want to hear it, you're wasting your time anyway. Your prayer is that as you treat him so much better than he deserves, as God has treated you, as you follow in the steps of Christ, who when he was under unjust authority was quiet and put his hope in God, as you do that, you trust and hope that God will work. And sometimes it happens quickly. Sometimes it takes a long time. Don't just say, I'll try this for a week and see how it goes. It may be a long time. But if you're planted by the streams of water, you can still flourish even if your husband is not. Isn't that great news? Your husband cannot keep you from growing spiritually if you're trusting in God. And then submission is not absolute. No husband has the right to command his wife to go against her conscience or against the word of God. Acts 5.29, when the apostles were told to stop preaching the gospel, what did they say? We must obey God rather than men. If a husband tells his wife to lie, to sign a false document, she must refuse because of her greater loyalty to God. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira and Acts, remember they lied before the Spirit. And she too died because she joined her husband in the lie. She has a higher responsibility to God even than to him. Uh, Another application of this would be that Hebrews 10 says, don't forsake assembling yourselves together as the church. Hebrews 13 says we should submit ourselves to uh, church leaders, that a wife has the right to attend worship and to join a church, whether her husband will or not. And he cannot forbid her from doing that. Now, I'm not saying she should go to 10 hours of meetings a week, just to get away from him. But she has the right to rather regularly gather with God's people, and he does not have the authority to stop her from going out the door uh, to worship God. And then also matters of conscience. Romans 14.23 says, Whatever is not of faith is sin. And quite frankly, what usually this has to do with is sexual things. If there is something that the husband is demanding that is against the conscience of the wife, He should not try to compel her to do that, which is against her conscience. And there are examples of this probably you can think of in your mind without me sharing them all with you. But he does not have the right to demand that she go against her conscience because what is not of faith is sin. 
Likewise, a wife is not obligated to endure physical abuse or abandonment or marital unfaithfulness. She has the right to be safe. And I'll give a word of warning here. I think, you know, things can swing to extremes how people handle this. And in the world, it's almost like if the husband raises his voice once, he's an abuser, get out of there, divorce him. That's an ungodly response. But I think sometimes in churches, women who have been physically abused are sent back and they're told, if you just be nicer to him, he'll stop. That is not necessarily true. There are some men who are exceedingly evil, and a wife has the right, I'm not saying rush and get a lawyer, but I'm saying if you are not physically safe, you have the right to get out of there, and the church should not send you back in to take a beating. And we as church leaders should err on the side of safety. Now, even in these situations, it would be, let's try to help this husband deal with his sinful anger, help him to repent. We want to try to bring the couple back together again. But a wife has the right to be physically safe and for her children to be physically safe. Um, there's a book, a couple books by Justin Holcomb and his wife about this. Then I also believe that a wife has the right to confront her husband's sin according to the process outlined in Scripture. In Matthew 18, it says, If your brother sins, you go to him. And if he will not listen to you, then you bring two or three. It doesn't say unless your brother is your wife or your husband. And there are situations where there's a man who claims to be a Christian, and he's beating his wife, or he's shouting curses in the home, or he's looking at pornography, and he's given over to these things, or he's getting drunk, And he forbids his wife to tell anybody else and he won't listen to her. If he claims to be a Christian, especially, she has the right to get counsel and to continue to confront him in these serious areas of sin. Uh, And that's an abuse. And men will try to quote Ephesians 5.22 saying, you have to submit to me and not report me. That's not what loving your wife is meant to be in terms of being the head, according to Ephesians 5.25. You are being a scoffer and a fool. Well, what if your husband is passive and he just won't lead? Uh, A very common problem, many men don't lead because they've never been exposed to a good model of leadership. It can help to be with couples who are flourishing, perhaps even couples where they've had to learn these roles. It didn't come naturally to them. Uh, Some husbands may not be believers at all or they need to grow up and to mature. Some men need to be discipled. But if you're disappointed in your husband's leadership, a verse I love is Romans 15, 7, which says, accept one another as Christ has accepted you to the glory of God. The fact that you're disappointed in his leadership doesn't mean you can't accept him and love him as your husband. And if he feels he's living continually under a cloud of condemnation, that is not going to help him to do a better job of leading. God accepted you by grace, not by performance. And God wants you to love and accept your spouse by grace, even if in some way they're letting you down. And then show him grace. And we'll talk more about that in the final session. Uh, Do not be given over. I'll read Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And there again is the gospel motivation. How can I overcome my bitterness? How can I overcome my anger? And the flesh tells you, well, he has to change or it'll never happen. Well, the flesh is lying to you. 
It's the gospel of Christ. When you realize all the grace and mercy that's been shown to you, that you can overcome bitterness and show mercy and grace, even if the other person doesn't fully understand to the degree they're wrong. And then encourage him when he tries to lead. I don't know how many times I've seen a man that he's been kind of passive and he tries to hold a family devotion or he tries to do some step forward in leadership and instead of getting encouragement, he gets a critique. Well, I'm not sure your theology was right here and the prayer was a little long. And Again, if there's even a little bit of a tool of picking, you know, water it, fertilize it, encourage him. And then as I've already mentioned, don't make an idol out of your desire for a perfect marriage. You have to realize perfection is found in Christ. It's found by grace. And if you make an idol of that, like James says, what's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? You have desires when they're unfulfilled. You kill, you quarrel. Your joy is in the Lord. In Isaiah 40 Do you not know, verse 28, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord and the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles, they will run and not get tired, they will walk and not become weary. How can you overcome your weariness? It's not by your husband changing. It's as you depend upon the Lord, he will strengthen you. So, again, there's a little memory device. H, hold fast to the role God has given you. O, obey your husband. N, notice how you can do him good as his helper. O, organize your life around your responsibilities at home. R, be restored gently, your husband, when he strays. And for the women, again, I, I want to express my admiration for the ladies who are here today and the ladies who are in churches today when you're willing to go against a culture which thinks you're a doormat, which criticizes the choices you've made. And I'm thankful to God that you have found that true freedom is doing the will of God and you're trusting in Him. I would encourage the single women here that... Your expectations need to be realistic. Uh, Even Christian romance novels can give you the wrong idea. I like to quote from one Christian leader, lady. She said, on my wedding day, God and I were trying to achieve two entirely different goals. I wanted to be loved. God wanted me to learn to love. But I will say this. Don't even think about marrying a man whose leadership you cannot trust. If you understand this is what it means to submit then you don't want to get in the car with a guy that you don't trust how he's going to drive the car because you may be in that passenger seat for 60 years. And uh, some women settle. Don't settle. Likewise, for single men, Proverbs 31, charm is deceitful, beauty is vain. A woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. When you choose a wife, obviously it's good to be attracted to her. It would not be fair to her not to be physically attracted to her. She wants that. She expects that. It's only reasonable. But how much more should single men value godliness, these characteristics? A woman who will do you good and not evil all the days of your life, who will be a helper to you for decades of your life. And some, some single men do not have their priorities right. 
And finally, to husbands, that how thankful we should be to be married to a woman who wants to be our helper. We should show her respect. We should encourage her. And we should strive to be the kind of Christ-like husbands who would be easy to follow. It's when you know Christ as your head and you know his love, you're able to do these things. Amen.